Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is a constant dialogue with investors about the economy, about markets, business and about investing to provide you with insight, learnings and a straight up point of view so that you can make better decisions with your money. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Robert and the show's guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Baharian Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, its general in nature, and does not take into account your specific circumstances and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial advice or decisions. Clients of Baharian Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this show. My guest today is Ed McManus, CEO of Deliveroo Australia, one of the largest food delivery companies in the world. Today we discuss the food delivery game and its influence on traditional restaurants. We talk about dark kitchens and the evolution of the food industry. We talk about consumer engagement versus intrusion, technology and marketing, the COVID side hustle, decarbonisation and the evolution of the carbon conscious consumer. We discuss going short mire and long office pods, and Ed paints the picture of life in 2030, or more like 2023. I found my conversation with Ed really fascinating. I hope you do too. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining Thanks, me. Robert. Great to be here, Robert. CEO of Deliveroo, you are a proclaimed past life scientist, a future life economist, historian, <laughs> I'm curious, professional sportsman of some kind, I don't know what sportsman of some kind you are, and I understand that you are, there's some debate here, amateur or professional beekeeper? Yeah, you've covered a few things there. Definitely amateur on the beekeeping side. Uh, I, I decided to try beekeeping maybe a couple of years ago. It's a lot harder than it looks, but uh, we, we can talk about that in more detail if you want. Yeah, and and, and I think it's an aspiring professional sports person. I've unfortunately had two left feet and still do. Two left feet as a kid, and, but, I, but I tried very hard, but I was, I was kind of no good. The rest of it's kind of semi-accurate in, in that description, but uh, thank you. I'm curious, you've got a, a bit of a diverse background, Ed. Maybe on the back of an envelope, can you, can you give us a... Uh, a quick history lesson on Ed McManus and your professional experience and career over the last few years. Yeah, thanks, Robert. Look, I've been very lucky over the years to work in a number of different industries and different roles. But I started my career as a research scientist, you know, completely different field to the one I'm in today. I left school, did a, a degree in university and a science degree and then did a PhD and spent a couple of years working as a research scientist you know, in a lab, white coat, all that traditional sort of stuff that when people think of a scientist, that that was me. And then I decided that, you know, I didn't want to do that forever. And I had an opportunity to join one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, a British company called GlaxoSmithKline. So joined GSK uh, here in Australia. I'd moved to Australia at this point because I'm Irish, but I've lived here for about 15 years or just over 15 years. So joined GSK here, worked there for five years, then uh, left there and started working at a business called Aurier Group. Many people will know that, be more familiar with uh, Aurier by its leading business, which is realestate.com.au, which, of course, most, most Australians know very well. 
I had a little over three years there, a really interesting time when that business was was growing enormously, very, very successful business. Uh, and it has continued to grow uh, and do very well since, since I left there. But I spent about three and a half years there. And then I joined the energy industry, which is one of the ones you mentioned a moment ago. I was running uh, Meridian Energy Australia, uh, which is the Australian subsidiary of a very large New Zealand business. Uh, Meridian Energy is, is probably New Zealand's largest business by market capitalization. And in Australia, we, we operated wind farms and hydropower stations, as well as a retail business that's business that sells electricity to homes and businesses called PowerShop. And then, yeah, just over a year ago, I had the opportunity to, to come across and run Deliveroo Australia. Deliveroo is a global business in 12 countries headquartered in London. And I run the Australian part. So yeah, look, been been really fortunate to work across a, a few different industries and lots of different roles, so lots of variety. But yeah, that, that that's my history. Delivery, you just mentioned um, HQ'd in in London. How does that work for you down here in in Melbourne? Yeah, look, it's um, it works well. We kind of call it the two shift system because we start work, um, and I've always been an early starter. Not as early these days because I've got three young kids. So, so I, I do the real work at home before before I go to work. Work for a break. You know, I start work as everyone does during the Aussie daytime, and then come home. Of course, those of us in Victoria have been at home for a long time working from home. But but I finish work five six o'clock or whatever, and spend a few hours with the kids, and then and then we we joke internally at Deliveroo about the second shift starting because our UK colleagues based in London start to wake up, and then there's lots of work we do with them into the evening. So you know, being a, a, an, a an Aussie subsidiary operation of of a global company that that comes with the territory. Uh, but to be honest, it works for me personally because I get to spend time with the kids over dinner and put them to bed and then start work again in the evenings when, when London wakes up. I, I've got a similar routine, Ed, myself, so I, I, I feel you. Tell us about Deliveroo for maybe those that don't know Deliveroo. I'm not sure where some of these people may be living, but uh, for those that don't know Deliveroo, give us a quick rundown and maybe just explain to us some of the nuances of Deliveroo that some of us may not be aware of. And I think some of that may very well be over in, in the UK more so than here in Australia. Sure. So, so Deliveroo is a food delivery business in its simplest form. You as a consumer go on our app or our website, have a look at the food you want to order um, from local restaurants. You click a few buttons, you order the food. And then in Australia, we work with 8,000 contractors who do the deliveries for us. They're either in a car or a motorcycle or a scooter. Some are also on push bikes in, in, in the city centres. They will make their way to the restaurant, pick up the takeaway food and deliver it to your home all within about 30 minutes of, of you ordering. Um, and so in Australia, we've got Deliveroo, Uber Eats and Manulog are, are the three main competitors in this category. There are a number of other smaller businesses. Uh, and so, so we're, we're competing heavily, uh, which is good for consumers and for restaurants, of course. We call it a three-sided marketplace. Uh, you know, it's a bit different to other businesses if you think about it, because we've got the consumer, the rider. We use the term rider, but, but that could mean someone delivering food in, in a car or, or on a, a motorcycle. But the rider and then, and then the restaurant. So, you, so as Deliveroo, we're dealing with the three constituents of the marketplace, which introduces some complexity and challenge. And we're, we, we, unlike some of our competitors, solely focus on food. Of course, everyone will know Uber and Uber Eats, but, but Uber are, are a rides business. 
you know, in terms of personal transport is what we traditionally think of Uber as. We're completely focused on food uh, and really dedicated to trying to improve the experience around ordering food and being the best possible partner we can be for our restaurants and delivering great consumer outcomes. And we've done a lot of innovation over the years. And one of the things that we really pioneered was what we call additions kitchens. Sometimes people will call those cloud kitchens, but that's where there are kitchens set up purely for delivery. I mean, it's a a very topical thing right at the moment. Um, So the same concept of as dark kitchens or black kitchens? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, three to 400 kitchens, individual kitchens all over the world. We have- Who owns them, Ed? We own them. Deliveroo owns the black kitchens. Deliveroo owns the kitchen, if you like, owns the premises, sets everything up. And then if you're a restaurant owner, you know, imagine you already have a restaurant, you can come and set up another kitchen within the addition's footprint. Or indeed, you might be someone who wants to start a restaurant, but for whatever reason, doesn't want to take on the fixed cost and the risk of establishing a restaurant themselves. In other words, a long-term lease or the capital outlay for an equipment. Equipment, You can come and set up a restaurant within an addition, addition's kitchen uh, and you don't carry that risk. As a, as a sole proprietor that you ordinarily would. And then, of course, you're catering to the delivery only market. So that's one of the things that we, you know, one of the first companies to establish a number of years ago and, and many other companies are, are following and trying to compete in this space. Is that big in Australia, Ed? We, we have two in Australia, both in Melbourne, one's in Collingwood, which is one site that has nine kitchens, individual kitchens within it. And we have another one in Windsor, which is a little bit smaller with, with five or six. So, uh, yeah, it's established here. The concept of food and delivery, are you or have you looked at expanding those services to groceries? I think in, in, the, in London, I think the likes of Aldi and a couple of others, Delivery partnered with to deliver groceries and so forth. Is that something that yep. you guys have looked at here in Australia? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have, and, and the sector has. And of course, as, as, as you know, and, and everyone knows, that has been particularly important through the the COVID-19 pandemic, because if you cast your mind back to sort of March this year, you know, March, April, when things really unfortunately kicked off, you remember that there was shortage of food in supermarkets, some items, uh, there was queues outside supermarkets. So it was pretty, pretty nasty for a period, you know, all for the right reasons, obviously. But, you know, going to the supermarket wasn't necessarily the best experience for a while. And then, of course, Many people were choosing to isolate at home and many people had to isolate at home. And so in that circumstance, Deliveroo and other companies like us became a really important part of the food supply chain, even more important than we ordinarily are. And as part of that, on-demand grocery uh, started to grow. So, so we've seen that broadly in the category in Australia. It's become something that has become very important. And I think, you know, uh, you know we'll probably talk about this in, in more detail a bit later on around trends and digital and all that sort of stuff. But uh, what we've seen broadly in our sector, as well as others, is that, you know, if you like, the move to digital has accelerated. Now, now it's been more acute in food because restaurants, unfortunately, have had to close their doors to dine-in customers for, uh, during, you know, different in different states at various stages of the pandemic. But of course, in that environment where restaurants are shut, food delivery became a really important way for one, consumers to actually get food, as I mentioned before, but two, not, not the only way, but a important way, and two, and vitally a really important, uh, in, in many cases, the only revenue source for restaurants. So restaurants for, uh, for a long period could only do delivery 
or takeaway where people would, would turn up at the restaurant themselves and pick up the food. Uh, and, and again, grocery is, is all part of that. So the category in Australia of food delivery has grown enormously through through COVID. Now, now that will come off a bit because restaurants are, are starting to open up again for dining, which is really, really important. And that's a great thing. And we rely on restaurants being being viable. And, and of course, for that, they, they need a healthy dining business too. So we've been really encouraging people throughout the whole period to go and support their local restaurant, whether through, you know, lockdown stage that has meant ordering on Deliveroo or it's meant, you know, getting up and leaving the house and walking or driving down and pick up, picking up the food yourself. Great. You know, that's not necessarily on Deliveroo, but, but it's supporting your local restaurant. Now, again, I can continue to mean ordering on Deliveroo because, because that's convenient for some people and, you know, the experience and choice on the app suits some people, but equally, that can mean going and dining in at your local restaurant. That's also really important too. So I encourage everyone who's listening. I know everyone's doing it. They're all, everyone's going out and booking and, and going and sitting down. And that's, that's really important to support. The challenge local is trying to get a, trying to get a seat now. That's the problem. Yeah. And, and the babysitter. Uh, <laughs> that's like right. That's right. Yeah. I'm curious, why, why would somebody use an app like Deliveroo to have their groceries delivered when Coles Online do it, Woolies Online do it? Why would someone use Deliveroo, not the actual grocery store? Well, look, I think there's a combination of reasons. And I think those those companies you mentioned have their own channels and their those channels will continue to be important and be successful. But, you know, the example I always give people, if we, we come up a level, if I go back to one of the industries I was in before, why would someone use realestate.com.au or domain versus going to the individual real estate agent's website, you know, because all the real estate agents in Australia have their own websites where the properties are listed. You know, why, why would you go to realestate.com? Well, the reason's obvious because you've got all the listings of realestate.com and you can browse and have a look. And in a similar way, whether it's for grocery or whether it's for, you know, what you would associate Deliveroo with traditionally, which is the takeaway hot food, Aussies are interested in food and, and there's people who come on our, our app and just browse and, and see what's available in the local area, be that grocery, be, be that hot food uh, and um, enjoy that experience. So, so I think there's a, there's a parallel there that makes it similar. Do you have visibility on that, Ed, when consumers and people logged in, what they're looking at, how long they're spending time on the app, yeah. what they're yeah. looking at? Do you, do you have, yeah. You've got visibility on that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we track all of that really closely. One of the couple of the interesting things that we saw through lockdown was that one, people, people were doing more ordering at lunchtime, the, the, the lunchtime. So, so if you imagine, traditionally, we have two peaks, one at lunch and then a, a bigger peak at evening, dinner time, tea time. What we saw through lockdown was that the lunchtime peak grew because, as you can imagine, we're, we're all, and you and I still are, working from home. And so people that ordinarily might be in the city or whatever and go out and order a sandwich or order delivery in the city or, you know, bring their own food, they're, they're at home. So we, so we saw that first, the lunchtime orders grew. The other interesting thing is that the evening peak peaked earlier. So ordinarily, pre-COVID, the evening peak for us was just after 7 p.m. And through lockdown, the evening peak shifted to about 6.30 because people are not commuting as much at home earlier and, and just interesting, interesting consumer trends. And there are a bunch of different stuff that we saw around food types. And, you know, when, when times are a bit harder, people turn to comfort food, pizza, burger, that sort of stuff. And people dispense with the healthy things. Of course, you can have healthy pizza and burger, nothing wrong with that occasionally. 
like when you when you get a bit old like me, you got to be a bit careful uh, on what you eat. Yeah, so that works. Few interesting trends. Coupled with the closure of gyms, Ed, uh, I don't think that's a good combination. Yeah, 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 that's right. Hey, so when 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 COVID hit, and you know, it sort of feels a little bit like old news now, but. No one was ever step footing restaurants again. No one was ordering out ever again. And people were hoarding, you know, food and you just touched yep. on people at gross at, at the supermarket lining up, queues out the door, et cetera. But I think you I think Deliveroo added something close to two thousand new restaurants post COVID. Can you talk to us about how you see the future of food in Australia and the future of food delivery and how consumers are gonna will be interacting? with food and food delivery apps like yours? Yeah, we added about 3,000 through the, the, the first phase of COVID. Um, some of those were, were restaurants uh, that traditionally had not considered delivery like caterers, who, whose business, unfortunately, you know, was kind of shut down overnight, catering into the corporate sector, that sort of stuff. And, and many fine dining restaurants that traditionally had not considered delivery came on board the platform. I think... Looking forward, look, look, delivery will will re- remain a factor, and and delivery will probably be when things even out a larger percentage of a rest. You know, obviously it's going to be different for different restaurants because you know you got vastly different types of restaurants in the category, and it'll be different. But if we just generalise for a moment, delivery will be a higher percentage of of a restaurant's revenue after. The pandemic event ends and hopefully you know it looks like in australia at least you know we've almost certainly suppressed and almost eliminated the virus but unfortunately that's not the case globally so so delivery will be a higher percentage of a traditional restaurant's revenue that said dining will remain a larger percentage and so i think you know the aussie culture with the multicultural population we have and, and all the different types of people food is is a very important part of our culture that's partly perhaps even I'm Irish, originally lived in the UK. I mean, you just sometimes forget, particularly here in Melbourne, we complain about the weather in winter. Well, of course, it's nothing like the European winter. You can pretty much go out and sit outside any time of the year, sit around. The, you know, when I arrived here 15 years ago, what struck me was the quality of the food, particularly at the sort of mid to low end of the spectrum. You know, high end food is high end food is, is, is good everywhere in the world. But your average food in Australia at least when I arrived here, I was surprised at how good it was and the quality of the service and all that. So it's a really big part of our culture. And, and that's why, as I said before, and I'm repeating the point, you know, and encouraging everyone to support their local cafe or restaurant, because we need these businesses to, to survive. And they've really struggled through COVID. And we, we want all those businesses and, and small business owners to, to, to prosper. And so I know I think basically the summary is delivery will be important, but dining will remain really important and, and important for one, the viability of those businesses, but two, almost like what I'm saying, the social fabric of the country, the way we can just meet someone for a coffee, meet someone for a dinner. That, that's hugely important just, you know, in our personal lives, social lives, as well as business. You, you talk about the encouragement of for people to go out to the restaurant, et cetera. Was table is table service something that is available in Australia, or is that a is that an overseas concept at the moment? No, it's available. We've launched it here, and so for those who don't know, that that's basically a service where you can go into the restaurant, get on the Deliveroo app, and and order your dining meal while sitting at the table. And and of course, we charge a you know massively lower commission compared to. Oh, so you do you do charge something on that service? It's, it's not very very service. low. 
very, very low. Yeah, yeah. Because you remember that in that scenario, obviously, we're not paying the the rider sure. to the delivery. So so people often hear about the commission and there has been some controversy around this, the commissions we charge restaurants. What I think is much less well understood is that a very substantial proportion of the, the traditional commission goes to pay the rider. So, so you as the consumer, you pay a, a delivery fee uh, and then we deliver also charge the restaurant a commission. The delivery fee goes to the rider as does a proportion of the commission. So, so when you're not paying a rider, obviously in that example, but similar to, to pickup, which is another service we have, uh, you're not paying the rider. So, so the commission is, is much, much lower and reflects that. But I guess it's a way, you know, for through, through the COVID for restaurants to avoid handling of menus, cut down on service staff, which is important because that means, you know, density limits can be different within restaurants or the number of people you can fit in, I guess. Um, and so we found that to be popular. And is that simply... it's just one of those, you know, when, when a crisis happens that drives innovation and that was something that we thought of quickly and it was a repurposing of technology we, we already had. Yeah, I'd be, cu- I'd be curious to use it, actually. Is that sort of from Deliveroo's perspective, just a value add to yeah. their consumers more yeah, so than, right. I mean, it's got its other benefits, obviously, as, as you've just described. Can we, can we talk about consumers, the behavior and, and engagement? How do you maintain engagement with your consumers? Because constantly you're fighting for space on someone's iPhone or Google phone with the likes of, Easy Uber Eats and a whole range of others, which I, I can go on. You're not going on forever. H- how do you maintain that engagement with your consumers to make sure that they keep opening your app and not Uber Eats or not Easy's? No, well, I think generally it's it's a really tough balance because, as you know, and anyone who's listening will know, whenever you sign up for a new service on your phone or or on your laptop, at least I think I'm signing up for this, and they're going to start sending me emails. And as soon as I get the emails, in nine out of 10 cases, I unsubscribe immediately, right? So I think, you know, I'm just using email as one example of engagement. Of course, there are many other forms of, of, of other touch points as well as when, you, when the consumer is in the app. But, but companies often use email and other forms of communication to drive people back in. Personally, as I said, I unsubscribe because I just, you know, I, I sit at my computer a lot. I get far too many emails just through work, which are all, of course, very important. And so from getting other emails from different companies, so it, it, it just frustrates me a bit. So I think there's a real balance on engagement versus intrusion into people's lives, right? Now, Deliveroo, the advantage, similar to realestate.com, if I go back to that example, we're a category that people are interested in. I mean, everyone loves, not everyone, vast majority of people love food. Vast majority of people love real estate in Australia. So they're engaging categories, if you like. And so relatively speaking, it's easier to, to engage people versus a whole range of other sectors. I don't need to name them off. But, you know, if you start getting emails from, from all sorts of different things, just you know, I'm like, no, I actually just signed up for this one thing. I don't want to hear, you know, about what, what you have to say. Whereas we have the advantage, as I said, in, in food that we interact with it three times a day, usually minimum plus like you said before, when, when we've been working from home through this COVID thing, you're in and out to the fridge another 10 times. So so for most people, it is engaging. Look, in terms of versus the competitors, well, that's the big challenge. And I think that challenge is no different to, you know, if you're Commonwealth Bank, how do you engage and entice customers over ANZ? If you're 
Origin Energy or AGL or PowerShop, how do, you, how do you try and do that? We tried to do that. We had a lot of success at PowerShop taking customers off the bigger energy companies like AGL and Origin, as I, as I mentioned. But of course, people working at those companies are, 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 are good and talented and work hard too. So it's a constant battle. Uh, Coles v. Woolworths, what, what differentiate, differentiates those against each other? Why do you go to Coles versus a Woolies? And so it's no different for, for Manulog versus Uber Eats versus Deliveroo. You're continually trying to give people a slightly better experience. I think an easier experience is often often not given the weight it, it should be. You know, you want to order food, go right through. But we, we add certain steps, right? So you can add a ride or tip. That's really important because a lot of people, you know, in fact, now you can add a restaurant tip as well as part of the Deliveroo experience. So a lot of people want to, tip the restaurant a lot of people want to tip the rider because that's the person who's come to deliver food to your door in 23 minutes fantastic i'll, I'll, I'll leave a tip but of course for others who don't that's two extra things that they see on the app in a very limited amount of real estate space uh that can potentially be a distraction or slow the experience down and that that's what you don't want so all these things we really think deeply about we try and test them in many cases who tests them ed Oh, we will. We'll, well, well, you will if you use Deliveroo. Often you, you won't know. So we'll launch a new feature. So example, restaurant tipping is something we launched during COVID because we thought now, you know, the, the tr previously you couldn't tip a restaurant through Deliveroo for whatever reason, you could tip a rider. And then we went, well, actually, gee, you know, the restaurants aren't getting these tips anymore because no one's going to dining. We should launch restaurant tipping. We got the idea and launched it within about a week. And in many cases, something like that, we will launch to, say, 5, 10, depending, 20, 25% of the population for a few weeks and understand what the, what the uptake is, what the interest is, what the negative interest is. So at any point in Australia, we will have tens of experiments running on different features in the app to understand what's happening uh, and consumer behavior uh, and then make decisions as to which of those features remains long-term. That, that is a real challenge. I mean, I... You know, I, I'm one of those guys that just jump on the new thing and I'll, I'll look at it. And if it's, you know, one little annoying uh, step in the process, the app's just uninstalled straight away. You know, you, you go in and try and buy something and something pops up. It's like, I don't want garlic bread. I, I never want Why are they giving me garlic bread? Like, let's just move on to the, to the next thing. The, the concept of, well, it's not really a concept. It's the reality of marketing and technology. Last week, I spoke to Renice Brewster about, uh, Domino's and I think Domino's have done a tremendous job with their technology and the way they market them, themselves. I've gone from not liking Domino's at all to that being the first place that I go to get pizza, quite frankly. How much of a role do you see marketing and technology, not only in your industry, but also more broadly? How do you think other industries can start, real estate's done it really well, food's done it really well. What about other, other industries? What are industries you're seeing that probably could and should be utilizing it far more than, than they are at the moment? You know, you mentioned marketing and technology, and I think that's one of the things that I have grappled with and the teams that I've been lucky enough to work in and teams that have worked, people worked for me over the years that we've grappled with which is basically how much of your pot of money that you have each year to invest in your business, how much do you put into, you know, what we would call traditional marketing? In other words, attracting new customers to your product or service versus investing money in your product or service, right? 
and, and at, say at Deliveroo, by investing in, I mean investing in the app and, and the core technology, investing in restaurants in terms of improving selection so that you have all the good restaurants, because I mean, that costs money. You've got to salespeople who go and talk to the restaurants. You can invest in the ongoing relationship and in, in, in everything that you need to keep restaurants on the platform and those sorts of things, which, which fundamentally, when the consumer arrives, make the experience better, investing in, in our technology that improves the, the the rider experience so the food is delivered on time, all those sorts of things versus investing in traditional forms of above the line marketing, other forms of marketing like TV, social media, et cetera, et cetera, sponsorships that you hope attract new customers to the platform. And uh, I wish I knew the answer because it's, it's a dilemma that you always have to think about. But I guess if your, if your service, whatever it is, is not quite up to scratch, or it's too expensive or, you know, you name it, and you're spending money attracting customers, but they're just not going to go through the funnel or they're going to churn away, then you're probably wasting your money. But of course, it's not black and white because you have to have some customers coming through to pay the bills to allow you to continue to invest. And I think that's just a, you know, I don't know hard and fast rule, but companies need to really consider that carefully as to when they choose to invest in one versus the other. And often, you will move the dials through the year or through through the you know the weeks or, or the months on one form of investment versus the other to get to where you ultimately need to be financially at, at you know quarter end month end year end uh, so that the business can keep going. I think the last six months have taught many of us that t- the use of technology in marketing is was a must. And I'd be really curious to see, I've got a gut feel about this, but I'm, you know, time will tell whether I and, and others are right or wrong as to how much of the technology marketing need, one needs to invest in that in order to continue operating and growing at, at the same pace. With COVID, Ed, a whole bunch of people you know, started side businesses producing goods and services and, and whatnot. If we can, you know, I'm happy to stay on the topic of food, but if you want to branch out to other products, I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation. H- how do you, and what's your advice, Ed, to those that have started a side business during the last six months or the last nine months? How does one bring a product, let's say it's a food product, to the industry where they don't have the scale, they don't have the brand, they don't have the resources to be able to push something out like a Deliveroo can or a, another organization. What is your advice to them and how can they get that product out? Let's keep it in the food game, maybe to start things off. What is your advice to these people to gain some brand awareness, some traction uh, and a fan base or a following for their product? Well, look, the first thing I would say, if it's a, a side hustle, and that's great, people should should always look at that but in a crisis always protect home home base and uh you know if you've got a side hustle just make sure it is on the side and remember who's paying your wages uh, and that you're really concentrating on that too because unfortunately we have many people out of jobs at the moment and and you know hopefully our economy will will recover faster than the rest of the world because we've sort of eliminated the virus but but that said i hope i'm not i'm, I'm smiling as i say that robert i, I I really encourage people to think about all sorts of things because I do also believe that if people are doing side things, whatever it is, then and they're enriching their their experience. There, of course, all those experiences are going to bring value back into what they do in their core. You know, if they're working for an employer, 
I guess on your question, it's a really broad question. And, and to some extent, I just really challenge people to think about is what they're bringing really different? And does it have a unique selling proposition? And are consumers going to want to buy it? Because, you know, let's just take one example that is sort of in food, which might be, you know, if you decide you're going to set yourself up in a, in a little gin distillery, you want to make sure that product you're producing is, is really good. Because what you're competing against is the traditional producers of, of gin and alcohol. And those organizations have enormous marketing budget. And so if what you're producing is, is interesting because you and your mates like drinking it or consuming it or whatever, but you know, would your mates buy it from you? That's probably a, a, an asset test. And if the answer is, you know, maybe they would, but maybe not, then I wonder whether you should think about moving on to the next project. But if you find something that, you know, is a bit different and you think for whatever reason you put a really strong brand around it, then, you know, at the moment, because of where interest rates are, and this is back into your game, there's plenty of money floating around. And there's plenty of money looking for a home in terms of something that might be really backable. And, and so I think if, if people have this side hustle, they've come up with something through COVID, be it food or be it whatever it is, and they think it's really a goal. Well, there's a very active and healthy startup community in Australia. There's a very strong angel investor community in Australia, and all these people are looking for, for, for things to back at a very early stage. And, and with interest rates where they are, that's not going to change because you know money sitting in the bank is, is really doing nothing. And so I guess that, that's a route that people should think about in terms of getting a little bit of money behind their projects, selling a little bit of the business, to get some money in and having a good go of it and, and failing quickly is key. And, and that's hard because, you know, whether it's a side hustler or it's in a, a traditional core business, corporate environment, whatever, if you, if you put your heart and soul into a project for three or four months, it's hard to, to drop it. You know, we've all been there. It's difficult. Three to or four months is pretty quick. Um, some, some of these things, yeah. as you know, you know, might take three or four years and it yeah. is, it is difficult to, just let it go because of, you know, you feel like you've sort of wasted the three or four years. But I think that goes back to process and whether it's new products on the side or whether it's investing, having a well thought through process around if this happens, this is what we'll do. And building something more systematic, I think, allows us to remove a bit of that emotion in our decision making that we tend to rely probably too heavily on as, as investors and as, as business people and as entrepreneurs. Can we talk a little bit about, Ed, the environmental impact? I know Deliveroo's been pretty vocal on the impact it has, the impact that food has, and given your background in, in the energy game, can you give us some insight into Deliveroo's thought process around things like decarbonisation, price of energy, the, and the impact on, on your business as well? Yeah, so very conscious that a bunch of cars and scooters and motorbikes riding and driving around the suburbs, of course, has an environmental impact. So quite recently, we took the decision to buy carbon offsets to make all of our deliveries uh, associated with uh, delivery of, you know, associated with our contractors who, who ride or drive to deliver food to people's homes, carbon neutral. And, and so uh, for those who don't know, it's a very common regulated process by which if, if someone has a project that leads to a reduction of carbon and, and that could be a whole range of things from wind farm to reforestation etc you can 
you can apply for carbon offset certificates. And then, of course, you sell those into a marketplace where people like us will buy them to, to offset carbon. And that market's been established for many years and, and continues to be very important. So that's one small step that we've taken so that our, our customers can think, well, at least that, you know, the small amount of carbon that's being emitted out of the exhaust pipe of a vehicle is now offset somewhere in the world. But there's a whole bunch of other things we're, we're trialing around usable packaging. Because again, you think about when you order food to be delivered, whether it's Deliveroo or direct from Domino's, like you talked about, like the food doesn't arrive on a plate. It's in a cardboard box, in a plastic bag, all of that, you know, not great. Some of it is recyclable, much of it is not. But we're looking at, you know, um, reusable packaging, almost like the Keep Cup for food, you know, because it's interesting. I mean, you know, Keep Cups, that's just one brand for coffee. There are others. But uh, I was, you know, pre-COVID, because unfortunately um, that's gone by the wayside for, for hygiene reasons through COVID, but I'm sure it'll come back. But I don't know about you, but, but pre-COVID, going to your local coffee shop and ordering a takeaway in a disposable cup was almost becoming something to be a little bit ashamed of. If you yeah. didn't have your, yeah. if you didn't have your keep cup or yeah. some other form of keep cup equivalent, it's almost like I'm not forgotten the keep cup. I'm embarrassed to go in and walk out here with the. With the, with the disposable one. And at Deliveroo, if you turned up with a disposable one in the office, you got a fine because the team are very passionate about all these things. So, um, and, and rightfully so. so. So those are some of the things we're doing. You partnered with Returner, Ed? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think Returner is the brother, yeah. sister of the, of the Keep Cup? Correct, correct. And there are a number of other similar technologies that we're looking at and trialing and using at the moment. So yeah, is very, very active. Very active space. Is you need, you need, working? You need a network effect. You need a lot of people to be doing it and a lot of restaurants to be Are doing people it. people lazy? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I'm, I'm just about old enough to remember when recycling was not a thing. But, you know, it's just, it's common now. Like the idea for, for more, I mean, the idea for our kids to not do it is just crazy, right? So things change pretty quick. And, um, yeah, I, I think you now most, most people want to do the right thing. Most people... Obviously, vast, vast majority of people segregate their rubbish. Do you feel like uh, this is an obligation on Deliveroo or something that Deliveroo is genuinely passionate about and wants to be at the forefront and, both, and lead this? Both. No, yeah. it's both. We're very passionate about it and, and it's an obligation. As it is an obligation on most companies, every company now, to, to reduce their environmental footprint and their carbon footprint. And that was something we were very passionate, passionate about at Meridian. Similarly, we, we carbon offset all the, because even though in the energy sector, we own wind farms and hydropower stations, of course, that all goes into the grid. And then the power you sell to consumers comes out of that grid, which is a mix of sources. So even though if you're a power shop customer, you were not using 100% renewable energy because of the mix effect of the grid. So we use, we carbon offset and power shop still carbon offsets all the electricity delivered to all the carbon uh, off, uh, emissions, excuse me, associated with, with electricity usage of its customers. So, very important, very topical renewable energy. I mean, the majority today still of Australia's energy is produced by coal, and, and that will shift over time because uh, to build a new coal-fired power stations now is too expensive, takes too long. You can build a new solar farm with, within a year. You can build a wind farm within 18 months. A, a coal-fired power station would take five, six, seven years. That's if the environmental and other approvals go well. And, and there's just too much risk associated with that and it's too expensive. So we will decarbonize. It, it will happen. 
but uh, it's not straightforward. There are some challenges associated with variable renewable energy, but all those challenges are solvable with batteries, with hydro, other technologies. And, and it's inevitable that it will happen. And clearly it needs to happen quickly. I saw some news on Tesla and, and their battery um, production here. I'm not sure the details about it, but um, you know, headlines saying that should reduce the cost of, of power and, and energy. How much do you guys think about restaurants on your platform that go against your ethos and passion for um, making a positive impact on the environment? So, um, you know, whether you've got certain food industries that are really producing, you know, high levels of carbon or whatever the case may be, it's just re- it's a net effect to uh, a net negative to to the environment. How do you how do you manage that? By here, you're saying you're trying to do one thing. And then at the same time, you part, part, not saying you are, I'm curious as to your opinion, partnering up with restaurants and having restaurants on board that go against what you're trying to do over here. So you're, you're pedaling really hard to work here, yet yep. it's being offset on the, other, on, on the other end. How do you how do you manage that? Yeah. Look, probably the more relevant example that came up, real example that came up recently was a restaurant had two food items that were called the something something burger and the something something I think it was another burger. I can't quite remember. And and the first one was the something something F burger. I won't say it in case there anyone uh, who might be offended listening. And and then the other one was even worse. It was something I honestly can't remember exactly. But basically, it was it was, uh, it was almost something to do with. Um, I mean, I just call it violence towards women would be an exaggeration, but basically, it was a derogatory comment around push a woman around burger. It was something like that. I, I, it wasn't that, but I can't remember. It was, and anyway, so something like that. And, and this came up because these items had appeared. You know, the question was, well, is that our responsibility? Because we're the platform. And actually, one view was it's up to the restaurant, whatever food they want, whatever food they want to call, you know, whatever names they want to call that food is up to them. And we're just the platform. But look, there was a, it was a, a microsecond of thinking to realize there's just no way that's going to happen. And we insisted they change it because I think we've got a, a responsibility as a business to ensure that whatever is on our platform, whatever is done. And that's just one example. There are many others fits with our values. And I just don't think it's good enough for companies like us to sit back and go, yeah, well, we're just a platform. Whatever happens in, in the marketplace, if you like, is up to the market to run. Not good enough. And, uh, you know, particularly that second one, I just can't remember the exact example, but hopefully I'm giving a flavor of what it was. It was just completely not in line with our values. Nor was the first one, but the second one was way worse. And uh, we just said no straight away. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's a number of dimensions that you're trying to tackle to drive um, as long as though you feel as though you've got that obligation, but also drive um, the way people think and the way they behave when, when it comes to food and, and a whole bunch of other things as well. well. Yeah, look, I mean, there's sort of stuff around healthy food options and all of that, but I'm just giving you that one before as a very extreme example of where we had to intervene. But, you know, uh, at the same time, it, it is a marketplace. And, and yeah, like we talked about, you know, earlier on, burgers and pizzas. Well, we, all, we eat a lot of burgers and pizzas in, in this house, but clearly you don't want to eat them seven nights a week. But un- unfortunately, there are people and there are children in Australia who do eat them seven nights a week. But you know, that, that, you know, the question is, is, is that Deliveroo's responsibility to tackle, you know, where do we draw the line on what's a marketplace versus where we intervene? And, and, and sometimes you've got to intervene and sometimes it is a marketplace and it is about 
personal choice and you've probably got an obligation to educate along with a whole bunch of other people but but it's not black and white and i'm sure you know mm. a topical example at the moment going back to energy is the banks and, and when do banks lend to fossil fuels and other things when do they let the marketplace run and, and i think that's not a straightforward question either for, for them to tackle maybe you can introduce pizza credits on deliveroo so every login has like three pizza credits per week and it resets monday next week so you can only ever order pizza well, that's right, but remember that i mean deliveroo you know a lot of people will will cook on sunday night monday night and tuesday night then they get home on wednesday and the kids are all going crazy or whatever or if they don't have kids they're tired because they've worked hard and they go i've nothing in the fridge you know i'll treat myself and i'll order you know whatever great fantastic like um that's good you you talk about the concept of delivery being a massive part of the logistics if you like of, of food i want to start talking and we might finish off on on this topic ed the 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 use of buildings and commercial and and retail and things like that you know sometimes you know when i'm at a restaurant and the deliveroo guy or girl walks in more more often than not it's it's a bit chaotic they don't know where to go what to do they're sort of lingering around and i'm just curious like i'd be it'd be interesting to see how that evolves as as we start opening up you've just been assigned as the director of a movie about the future ed we're in the year 2030. What the hell is going on? What are people doing? And how are people living, maybe as it relates to the way they live, the way they work, the way they consume food, where they go to eat, etc. Can you just paint that picture of how you think this evolves and what happens in that movie in the year 2030? Well, that's a tough one, but some trends, none of which will be that startling for people. But I think, I suspect you'll see a few things. One, with technology and, and you know this medium that you and I are talking through today, all of that is accelerated in terms of people's adoption. So we'll see a more flexible workplace, and I think we will see more people living in places like Newcastle, New South Wales, Wollongong, maybe Bendigo, Ballarat, Geelong, around Melbourne, and the equivalent regional cities and towns around our major cities in Australia, and, and they'll work there three days a week and maybe they'll get the train from Bendigo into Melbourne two days a week. You know, so I'm sure people do commute from Bendigo to Melbourne or Newcastle to Sydney today, five days a week, but I think it'd be pretty tough. Uh, but doing it one, two days a week would be, you know, more palatable. So I think we'll see those regional towns and cities population grow. And I think that's a really good thing to, to make those regional cities and towns even more vibrant than they are today, because we have seen, uh, some depopulation of rural areas over time and, and cities grow. So I think that trend will be reversed. And then I think the other trend that we'll see is that I think you've got a lot of traditional retail. I don't necessarily mean food. I mean, you know, other forms of retail in our city centres. Uh, and I think through COVID, of course, everything, a lot, a lot of things have migrated even more online. And I just wonder whether that's going to come back for those those big traditional retailers you know, I reckon if, if we think about, you know, I've got young kids, so when they grow up a bit, I'm going to tell them that, you know, back in the day when we used to go and buy clothes, we'd go into a shop and try on the shirt. And then if you didn't like it, you'd put it back on the rack and someone else might buy it. I think they'll shake their head going, how the hell, how the hell could you do that? Why would you be trying on some clothes that someone else then buys? Because I think it'll all be, be online. I think what will remain of retail is, is not quite niche, but, you know, high quality, experience-based, 
books, for example, like the really high quality bookstore definitely survive. You know, the, the jewelry where going into that jewelry store or, or makeup and other beauty in other areas where being there is a real experience. Those, those sorts of industries will thrive. But I suspect the big name, big real estate footprint, city center retailers will, will really struggle. And I wonder whether over time and, and, and further more, not just city centers. So, you know, one of the suburbs quite near here, I was there the other day and along the, the strip, just the traditional Aussie suburb, we're talking place before five Ks from, from the city center of Melbourne. Along that strip, 30% of the of the shops are empty. And some of that, there were small cafes that, that closed. Perhaps they'll reopen post-COVID, but they closed as of a few weeks ago. What happens to those strips? Well, I think those strips become more residential, and I think the city centres become more residential. So, so I suspect what will happen is you'll get more people living in, in the regional towns and cities. Some of those res, what, were res, what were commercial strips will partly convert to residential. It's already happening, actually, a little strip close to me here. Uh, was four or five shops a few years ago, now one and possibly a second one being converted to residential. And I think the city centres will convert to probably higher end, larger apartments. If you compare Australia to cities like Munich, Paris, other places like that, Barcelona, families living in apartments is a common thing. I don't know, that, that's not the traditional Aussie way, but uh, I suspect you'll get large, whether it's families living in them or not, I don't know, but larger apartments in the city centres a bit less big, big footprint retail, more of the, you know, ex experience-based retail. So can you uh, see the likes of Maya being literally leaving the the Burke Street Mall and being gutted out and converted to high-end luxury apartments? Well, I wouldn't be buying shares in any of those companies, put it that way. That's right. not financial advice for anyone, of course, <laughs> remembering your disclaimer, but... But that's just my personal view, and of course, I could be wrong. So I think what's the net impact of all of that? Perhaps more people living in, in, the, in the traditional suburban strips. I'm not talking completely. You'll still get commercial, of course, they're very important, restaurants, etc. More people living in the city centres, more people living in the regional towns. That, all of that adds up to less urban sprawl. So the, the house and land packages and estates that we see, you know, 40, 50 caves in the city, those are... Uh, beautiful homes uh, in many places, great, in many cases, great places to live. I'm, I'm not saying they're not, but I suspect we'll see less of that over time. And we'll see more density in inner suburbs, you know, more apartments, that sort of thing, higher density where you'll leave your, your apartment uh, down to the train 20 minutes into the, into the So city. what happens to the, to the, to the folk out 40, 50 Ks out um, where they've bought in that was previously Greenfields has been, rezoned and developed etc what happens to to those folk when you've got city centers now being focused on and we're, we're growing density rather than having that sprawl if you if you like what happens to them and does it mean that those areas and suburbs don't get the maybe the infrastructure anymore as much as they might? Well, i think it's no it's really important they do get the infrastructure and perhaps you know you'll get little um you know where there was traditional retail you know around those newer suburbs you'll get mini business parks where people can go and, and rent a desk for 50 bucks for the day so they don't have to work from home from home they can drive two three k's and and sit in a desk that costs 50 dollars a day paid for by their company do that two three days a week and the other two days a week drive into city center melbourne wherever it is or sydney that they work 
And, and what does that all add up to is less traffic on the roads. So, you know, I think the conclusion is, I think it's a better place in the future. I just think it's different to, to, to today. None of that's particularly shocking to people. And some people, what I think is obvious, uh, and they already know, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm wrong a lot, but a lot of things, Robert, and I'm wrong about all of that. But I think that that is ultimately a better quality of life because we know traffic in Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane is horrific at times. Who That's good for no one. We know a lot of people have got long one-hour commutes. That's just, you know, it's not a waste of time if you're listening to this podcast, of course, and your other podcasts and many other podcasts that people, that could be really fruitful. But, you know, it's, it's time that you're not doing probably the most productive form of work. It's time you're not with your families or friends or other outside of, of work interests. So, you know, it's, it's, it's time that I think we could do without. I mean, less traffic on the roads, those who have to be on the roads get there quicker, our goods and goods and things that need to be moved around gets there quicker, that reduces cost. I mean, all of that, you start to go through it, it just adds up to a lot of benefits. And there are some losers, unfortunately, but those companies that offer, you know, unique services, unique products, uh, will continue to do really well. I've got one final question before we wrap up. I've been seeing a lot of these companies pop up that provide these small study de- study pods that they build somewhere else and come put together in your backyard. Like, is, is that a fad or people are going to have these things popped up in their backyard where they walk into this two by two um, or one and a half by one and a half meter little cabin that they work from? Like, is that a, is that a thing? Or oh, that no, I, I think, I think so. And I consider putting one in here to be honest, because, you know, as I said before, I've got young kids and it has been a challenge during lockdown because daddy's at home, but, I can't play and all those sorts. I mean, it's just, I mean, you've got younger children as well and, and people who are listening will understand too. And I think, so, so that's what, but, you know, that's one side of if you've got family around, you're working from home. But even, I was talking to somebody yesterday who, who doesn't have children and, and, and there's been a similar challenge because while we're working from home, and obviously it's been forced on us uh, in, in Melbourne definitely for a long period and other states, all we've been working from like this, there's been less separation between work and home. But I don't think that's healthy either because, you know, you need that. And even if all that break is, is that you're walking the, the 10, 12 feet from the garden pod, as you describe it, back into the house. It's just that mental break. And I think that's work and that's not work. And uh, accessibility and, and all the tools and, and Slack and Zoom and everything else, all great, very productive, welcome them all, enable me to do my work better than I did in the past, but you do get a blurring of the lines between home and work and on some level on some frame, that's probably not healthy. So I think that psychological break is important and that could be provided by the, by the, you know, the pod you were talking about, but it could also be the, be the work, as I said before, the work center, that's, you know, two or three Ks from home. So we heard it here first from Ed McManus, sell Meyer by office pods, uh, in the backyard, that's uh, that's where to invest your money. But the things that you're describing, Ed, in your movie of 2030, doesn't actually sound so crazy like the Jensen's that it is isn't actually possible. It actually well, I think seems... it's, it's it's probably more like the 2023 movie. Yeah, and look, I don't, I don't disagree with you. Maybe you weren't creative enough. I don't, I don't know what it is, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think a lot of what you're talking about is is happening. J- just anecdotally, the I think it's on Collins Street. There's one particular building, five five five. I think the number is, um, which used to be an old National Australia Bank building, and it was a derelict building at 
you know, no one was ever in there. It got gutted. I'm not sure if it got knocked down, but they're repurposing that particular area or building, I think, for, for now residential, which um, maybe, maybe high levels of density in city centres is something that is already happening. We're just going to fast track that. Ed, I've learned a lot today. I think uh, a lot of it probably has to do with uh, consumer experience and giving people options, making things easy for people. Time is becoming more and more valuable, and I think people are realising how valuable time can be. Spending, you know, an hour or two extra because you don't have to commute with your kids at home, I think, is is something that we and lots of parents will cherish for a really long time. Ed, thanks for coming on today. Um, great to chat with you. Thank you. Likewise. Bye. Bye. Bye.